The Old Testament is notoriously difficult to read without proper context and can be a barrier of entry for people who aren't Christians. Even people who are Christians sometimes struggle to make sense of God's character in the Old Testament. In these two episodes, I intend to address some of the commonly held misconceptions about the Old Testament, its culture, and the meaning behind it all. Hey, I'm Bailey. I'm Michael. And I'm David. And welcome back to the Face in the Gates podcast. Uh, as I mentioned in our lovely, beautiful intro, um, today we're talking about the Old Testament. We're talking about the God of the Old Testament, which is newsflash, the same God as the New Testament. Some people don't think that. Um, there's, there's only one God. They, uh, well, some people have kind of raised the issue that, well, God is kind of malevolent and and very i don't know his his character is portrayed a little bit differently in the jewish um hebrew bible as opposed to the new testament there are you know some parallels but you know the focus is more you know you, you get the idea of like the old testament god as being like this vengeful vengeful angry wrathful god and then the, the god of the new Lord. testament is just all peace and love you know which is not entirely true, yeah. but you know there there's, but now, as David puts it, a little bit of a, a little bit of b. Yeah, and then you add in, in the whole and also, Jesus thing and I like mean, that whole story arc to it. It's like, well, everyone can be saved now, so like mm, it's gonna be a little more positive. And yeah, I mean, it also fits with the cultures because I mean it was very much, go to Hammurabi, very vengeful. You do something to me, I do something back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as a preface, um, this is not a historic account slash defense of the reliability of the Old Testament as I did with the New Testament. That is outside of the scope of this episode. Though on this note, it is worth mentioning, um, though, that uh, Jesus himself never sought to correct the Old Testament, only the understanding of the text. So that should be enough at least to get us started in, in terms of believing the reliability of the new, the Old Testament. Um, the purpose of this episode will be more of a historical debriefing of ancient Near Eastern culture and practices. If we can see things the way the people at the time saw them, perhaps we can get a better understanding of the text. Um, and this is also being based off of notes that I've taken from Paul Copen's book, Is God a Moral Monster?, he has done his research, and so if any of what I mentioned in this episode appeals to you, go check out his work. And also on that note, there are different authors that take different approaches to um, handling the things that go on in the Old Testament. So there are going to be, some, it, it, you know, if there's informed Christians out there, you know, some of them may not like Paul Copan's approach. I think it's fine because it, it focuses heavily on 
the historical context and applying that and trying to not rewrite or reinterpret the Old Testament. But there are other approaches. I'm not aware of what exactly they are. Um, but for the purposes of this episode, that's what we're going to go with. Uh, this is also an episode that I originally had in the uh, Evaluating Christianity series. But I decided to push it out into the objections to Christianity because all of the things that I was talking about in the uh, Evaluating Christianity series was more making a positive case for Christianity, whereas this is kind of like a defensive case, and I felt like it fit more in with this, and it's it's kind of an objection people have, so I felt like it fit in with, with this uh, series. Anyway. Yeah, because especially like the Old Testament, I know a lot of atheists, with some of the stuff we might go across, go over, it's like some of their main objections. Right. A lot of, a lot of objections, um, particularly from really came from like the new atheist movement around the early 2000s a lot of people will say look at the god of the old testament how could you worship a god that commanded these things or allowed these things to happen or it's whatever like uh if you have objections with this you'll have objections with any religion yeah well that's that's why they're yeah. coming from atheists is because they don't want to believe in from religion. um as kind of we've talked with like Christianity, the main thing is the New Testament. Like Old Testament's there for context and the kind of history behind it, mm-hmm. and what leads up to it. But if you want to have rules to live by, the New Testament as a Christian would be what you want because that's the turning point. Right. New Testament is like the main deal, but the Old Testament is also important in terms of building the base. That and the narrative of the overall arc of the Bible, which yeah, uh, there's a channel on YouTube. We'll, we'll get to the episode actual content in a minute because this is kind of a side thing. But there's a channel called Bible Project, and they kind of evaluate the overall story of the Bible and talk about how there's a narrative flow, even though there's 66 books written in different ways, or no, 66 authors. Um, you know, they're all written different people, different time periods, and yet there's still a narrative flow and um a lot of the new testament writers picked up on certain things about the old testament and kind of repeat those themes and quote that and stuff like that so and like as we were talking it well as you were talking like uh the parallels in revelations and genesis yeah the first three chapters of genesis parallel the last three chapters of revelation or vice versa technically because revelation came after but just little narrative things like that that the New Testament authors were picking up on. Yeah, and also to touch back on the actual question part, I think these are some questions that I say a questioning Christian may ask or someone who's just kind of undecided may also look at and ask and look for some sort of answer yeah. or try to find the deeper meaning throughout the whole plot, for lack of better words. Yeah, so, I mean, it's not necessarily... Um, just questions a, that only atheists would yeah. have because like i mentioned you know there's there are some christians that are like this is tough to read and understand because this is not what i believe about god's yeah, character that is is kind of fucked up yeah so some context is needed yeah so let's go ahead and uh get to these questions i've um i'm gonna let michael and david 
hammer me with the the good old questions and then I'll give you my notes that I've taken from Paul Copen's book. A good old hammy women. Yeah. But to get it started off, Bailey. God uh-huh. is an egomaniac who is obsessed with himself. He gets angry and jealous when people worship other gods. Isn't that petty? What's his deal? <laughs> well said, Michael. Well, someone who is prideful or egotistical is someone who has an inflated sense of self-worth. That is, they think they are better than they really are. To have humility is to have an honest and accurate view of oneself. So, if I say, I am the worst vocalist ever, that would be a lie. Haven't you heard, Michael? If I said, I'm the best vocalist ever, that would also be a lie, because I can think of several vocalists that are better than me. But if I said, I'm a decent vocalist, but I could use some work, that's an honest evaluation. So, similarly, if God is truly almighty, omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, omnipresent, Certainly, he has at least the authority to demand worship. If God is truly all good, then he is deserving to warrant said worship. So God does not have an inflated view of himself. He has an accurate and consistent view of himself. And if God is just, he ought to get angry when people worship lesser deities. It seems egotistical to us because that's how much higher he is than us. We should only worship what is worthy of worship. I don't know if you guys had any thoughts on that. I have another little thing I was going to spiel about, but... No, I'm just thinking about it. Yeah. All right. Um, The other thing I was going to mention is there is a good jealousy and a bad jealousy. So if you're being jealous out of self-centeredness, that is a bad jealousy. But if you are jealous out of concern for another person, that is a good jealousy. If Michael's girlfriend decided to cheat on him, He would be hurt, angry, and jealous, and rightly so. Those feelings are warranted because he cares about her, and there is a trust that has been broken in this scenario. So when God is hurt, angry, and jealous that the Israelites are worshiping other gods, it is out of concern because he cares for them. God wants what's best for his people, and he knows those other gods are not on the same playing field as him, so to speak. And considering that worshiping other gods often considered uh, consisted of getting drunk, having ritual sex, and engaging in gluttony and adultery, I don't blame God for getting angry. Anger and jealousy in this case is warranted and morally loving. And that's what I had on that one. I think that's well said. Pulling the big brain move. And he's like, it, as we like stated before, I forget which episode but the perception that we have it and we put upon say like god or any other deity is based on our perceptions and our culture largely well our culture molds our perception right as we stated before (laughs) yeah and we can only view things through an earthly lens god pulling the big brain moves yeah and and that's that's gonna be one of the themes we get to throughout these episodes or these two specifically is we are a lot less violent than they were than we were than they were three thousand years ago yeah we uh, we don't you still from a store you get a ticket instead of losing your fucking arm yeah or worse there there, there's a lot worse so hell i'd say we're less violent now than we were 
50 years ago, 100 years ago. Yeah. Name a time Hopefully. Period. In general, in general, it, overall. But uh, as a culture. Yeah. The, the overall uh, cultural climate at the time was just much more violent back then. And we'll get to that with uh, some of the other points, just some of the cultural details. But yeah. So, what well, one thing I know a lot of like, especially atheists think about are kind of the heroes, quote unquote, that are put on, such as like David. Take a look at him. For example, he ended up committing adultery and killing her husband, at least by proxy. How are people supposed to see these people as role models for God's people? So, to begin, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that God likes it. Uh, there are all kinds of immoral acts done in the Bible. There's a difference between something that's a description and a prescription. So a, a description is something that happened. A prescription is something that ought to happen. And context is key here. These stories are in the Bible because it makes it more relatable, more honest, less fantasy, and less idealistic. Um, even the greatest characters of the Old Testament had their moral shortcomings. As I mentioned, it's important to read things in context. In the case of David... God punished David for his actions by killing his first son with Bathsheba. In many cases where a biblical character has a moral shortcoming, it is part of a larger story where God's divine justice is displayed. So far from condoning these actions, God is telling a much greater story. Yeah, he, well, because like, for example, in my viewpoint, that's like when David, David versus Goliath, it's like, yeah, the small man can triumph. And then later on, it's like, oh, yeah, he's human. Yeah. And he does terrible things like the rest of us. Yeah. yeah. And it shows that because I remember one person was like, David possibly could have been like the most godly person in the terms like perfection. But then he royally fucked up. Mm -hmm. He didn't just do a one. He didn't like steal a piece of candy. He committed adultery and then <laughs> murdered a guy. Yeah, and there's there's a lot more um, context to that story, which yeah. I don't have time to go into here. But um, I recommend, and I've, I mentioned this, I think, in a previous episode, uh, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes is a book that will kind of go in depth through that. Um, because, like, the way you read um, that story in our culture people in another culture are going to read it completely mm -hmm. differently. And also when you are aware of the um, cultural context, um, that changes a few things as well, uh, which I think Paul Copen goes into a little bit of that yeah. in his book. Because as I well. remember like when we were like young, that was the one thing we focused on, like one, like vacation Bible school. Mm -hmm. And it's like, damn, he really messed up. Yeah, so, well, just, like, one of the things that I remember in, in terms of the context of that is, like, um, so there, there's, like, the king's balcony, and Bathsheba, it wasn't, the, the way we kind of read it is, like, David was lurking and being a creep and found this 
beautiful naked woman showering on her ceiling or on her being uh, a voyeur. What's what's the top of a top of a building? Yeah. Whatever roof. Roof. That's what it's called. I'm dumb. Anyway, um, well, first of all, people back then didn't shower on the roof of their building. They didn't do that. Um, so, really, what what is happening is Bathsheba knowing where she was near the king's palace decided to do that being a naughty nelly to kind of you know seduce right in a in a way um and that uh there there's also apparently some contextual clues that lead people to believe that she didn't want to be with her husband she would rather be with the king and it was also very customary for kings to take wives and not, not even if they're you know married already. Like, oh, this it, it's this, just this new bitch. it's it's technically an honor for the wife to be. You're the now king. the side hoe of the king. Yeah, the 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 king can pick up as many hoes as he likes and have no social repercussions. That was just the norm back then. Yeah, and to step away from the actual story, the biggest thing about the Bible is we live in an imperfect world. We as men are flawed, and this is no matter what religious outlook you have. Yeah. If all of your heroes, all your idols, you listener are thinking of right now, they're cornballs. They have skeletons <laughs> in their closet. Yep. I know all mine do. Except for the J man, he's all good. I'm talking earthly. <laughs> yeah, I got you. And I mean, so, look at for them, favorite comedian Bill Cosby, terrible person. <laughs> I mean, and to think, and then you add some sort of, say, for David Power or any earthly temptation or what they, what you feel as something has made your right, mm-hmm. that leads you to be, to accentuate your imperfections. And then when you're a focal point of, say, story, you can also have those imperfections be pushed forward even more through this telling of the story and right. the context. Yeah. And we're all imperfect people. So if I was reading a book about a bunch of perfect people, it'd be, it'd be boring. It, it's yeah. not relatable. Right. They got plot armor for days. Then. And that, that goes to show a little bit of the honesty and reliability of it yeah. is because they don't sugarcoat what happened. Yeah. Because I remember like when, as I said, during vacation, I was like, yeah, make sure not to do that. The key thing that it was written in the book for, A, show people are vulnerable, and B, don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing a lot of people forget when they're looking at any religion and questioning it, trying to learn about it. This is a holy book. There's a there's a whole book about having sex. Yeah. And? Yeah. It's written by... Who penned it? The big... I mean, it's Solomon. It in theory, on, I think that's who it's credited to. Songs of Solomon. It's a man. He's imperfect. We all are. Well, it's not. I mean, it's the spicy part of the book to make sure you keep on reading after to see if stuff like that comes up yeah. again. Yeah. Well, and it's technically, I think that's in like the wisdom literature section. That's, of the Bible, that's like so. taking <laughs> taking what and I would say parts pre- I'm look up to. That's like <laughs> that's like walking into a church and taking what the preacher says word for word. Salt for salt, verbatim, not necessarily right, because he himself is a flawed person, because yep. he is an earthly man. 
Right. And that's something a lot of people will forget about and take out of context are it's a bunch of different books or by a bunch of different people put together and people they're all imperfect yeah all right so let's go to the next question yeah all your heroes are cornballs as quoted by jpeg mafia (laughs) yeah but start next question why are there such strange laws in the Old Testament, and why don't Christians follow them? What's that about? What's all that about? Because I, I think we've all heard the argument before. Oh, yeah, like the multiple fabrics. Oh, well, you, you, you wear two fabrics, so you're not a real, you're not a real, you know. Listen, Seventh-day Adventists do that. They yeah. do it for different reasons. They're also like a cult group. They, they, they must have like real hard time finding clothes and because like these are polyester and you can't even go yeah. walk in like Walmart and buy a pair of pants anymore. So these laws, which are called ritual purity laws, were given specifically to Israel by God. Many of these laws that seem strange to us today would make more sense in context. For example... Men are told when men are told not to shave their beards, it is because something that is something that the Canaanites did as a sacrifice to lost spirits. Tattoos were forbidden because in many uh, ancient Near Eastern religions, they required tattoos to be given as a part of their rituals. These ritual purity laws were put in place to separate Israel from the surrounding pagan nations. When you see a true Christian today, you should notice something about the way they act and live their life. They should be different somehow. The same concept applies to the people of Israel. When Jesus established the new covenant and the early church disputed these issues, like circumcision addressed by Paul in the New Testament, they determined that the newly converted Gentile Christians did not have to uphold the purity laws because they were not ethnically Jewish. That's why it's not forbidden for Christians to shave their beards and eat meat. Though the moral law, such as the Ten Commandments, is still applied to Christians. So, when we come upon a strange-seeming law in the Old Testament, there's likely some cultural or historical context that you're missing. Additionally, we have to determine if it is a purity law or a moral law in order to see if it applies to Christians today. Yeah, and like, as you're saying with the laws... With the cultural significance, like, for example, with in Islam, not eating pork. Mm-hmm. That was the key reason was because uh, pork would make you deathly ill sometimes. And yeah. trichinosis and all that stuff that nowadays it's gone. Yeah, well, I'm pretty certain they just stole that from Judaism. Well, yeah. I mean, they're all in that kind of <clears throat> center. It's a dirty yeah. animal. So that's dirty, one reason, for example, animal. during like the... Uh, plagues and like middle well middle ages like jews tended to survive better because of those cultural well those laws built upon cultural and their sanitation basically right there there was um the the purity laws are are to kind of keep the jewish people morally clean i guess in a way not not to conflate that with the moral law but to keep them clean in, in a sense, so that when they go to the temple and to make their sacrifices, they are clean and prepared for God. That's the kind of kind of the idea behind it. Um, and also, uh, there is a practical reason why these laws are there. So yeah, at least some of them. A lot of well, 
Yeah, right. Some of them. Um, a lot of them have a practical reason behind what they are. So, like, a lot of the things will be like, well, why is it a sin to do this? Well, and we'll probably talk about this later. Um, sin is a sin because it, it either hurts you, someone else, or your relationship with God. Sin is not a sin because God just doesn't want you to do anything fun. Sin is a sin because he's trying to protect you in some way. Which that gets into a whole different conversation, which we'll have later. Yeah, which, but anyway. which also is why these laws have essentially changed or faded over time is you might not need to be protected from that certain thing anymore due to how everything has changed. Also, I think the biggest issue with this, and this goes for both sides of the coin, it's just cherry-picking bullshit at this point. Oh, you want to cherry-pick yeah. something against me? So I'm cherry-pick something against you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, a little bit of a cowardly defensive move. politically loaded, theologically loaded thing. Instead of going, hey, laws change. You know, we can play pinball on Tuesdays. Uh, I don't have to... I can ride a horse after night if I want to. It's kind of a low-hanging fruit. Yeah, it's cherry-picking bullshit. It's the easy thing to grab. Yeah. yeah. Which, I, I've got one other thing on that. Um, we also have to keep in mind the context. God gave the Ten Commandments first. When Israel disobeyed, he gave them more rules. When they broke those rules, he gave them more. And... There was also a sect of Judaism that, uh, called the Pharisees that um, basically put more rules and more rules and more rules that weren't necessarily given by God, um, but they were just put in place um, for the sake of being there to try and be upright. Um, obviously, try to be ahead of the plan with God. Yeah. Obviously, many of the laws... Uh, were far from ideal and didn't actually implement the best form of morality. But remember, in Genesis 1, God couldn't reveal in great scientific detail how he created the earth because they didn't know what science even was back then. Instead, he gave them a simple explanation that would suffice. Similarly, God couldn't just establish perfect moral absolutes for everyone at all times during this time in history. He had to do the best with what he had and make moral progress. Not to mention the fact that the Mosaic Covenant was not binding and constantly looked forward to a new covenant. They knew it was a temporary, they knew it was temporary and they knew something greater was going to come eventually. That new covenant and fulfillment of the law came in the person of Jesus Christ. So that was my other little point there um so that's that's why there's weird laws nine times out of ten basically short answer is there's a lot of context you're missing probably um, basically and, uh, children being bad so mama jesus was like no no you can't follow those but we're gonna see about these too yeah you're gonna have to shape up and straight up one way and yeah. the reason they're gone is because they're no longer needed needed or relevant just like a bunch of stupid laws that are technically on the books uh-huh. aren't followed in america because they're no longer needed to be yeah well the idea was that basically god instilled these laws for them to point to 
God. So yeah. people would follow those and and follow God. That was the end that he was trying to impose. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the Jews around the time thought the law was the end. They used the law as a means to end the end. They thought that if they did all these things, then they would be righteous and that would be good enough. And so that leads to kind of looking down their noses at people who didn't do that uh, or who didn't follow the law. And so that is, and they were also very um, ethnically egotistical, I'll say, just because they thought, you know. We're God's at, people. At, at the time of Jesus, you know, the, the Jewish thought was we are superior to all other, you know, nations. One day God's going to send us a warrior king and enslave these Gentiles and we're going to rule. That was the idea. Dun, dun, dun. That was the idea <laughs> that, didn't... that the Jews were expecting. And then Jesus comes around and is like, hey, you guys are completely missing the point. You're, you're selfish, greedy, immoral. And you're missing the point of the law. The point of the law is to point you to God. And he was like, "I'm a righteous warrior." So I'm gonna, to I'm gonna embody, warrior. I'm gonna embody the law. I'm gonna fulfill the law, and teach you to read the Old Testament the way that it should be read. And he kind of offers insights and and points people to God. So like the idea, long story short, is to kind of, you know, Jesus kind of put them on the right course in a sense, or, or tried to at least ways. Yeah. And he was kind of a warrior, but he wasn't a, necessarily a physical warrior. He was a righteous warrior, a savior. Yeah, he was not like the uh, the, the political king that was going to come slay their enemies like they thought. He actually came to... And, and the other thing is the Jews were looking for a earthly warrior king. Yeah. What Jesus came to do was much bigger, and that's why it was kind of outside of the people and at the time's scope. Over their head. Yeah. So ultimately, Jesus came to defeat sin and death and evil all the way back from Genesis, not to just deliver them to some earthly promised land. So that was kind of a little bit of a culture shock for them at the time to think like, okay, well, Outside he's here of the to... box of literal meaning. Yeah. And, you know, the kind of tie into laws why were the punishments so severe in the old testaments back then it was coming for god to strike people down for sinning while stoning people to death and beating them with rods were more common ways of enacting justice an eye for an eye was a standard isn't this barbaric in a sense mm -hmm. well i mean as we previously stated like it was way more violent back then yeah and uh, i i love eye for an eye yeah. Because that, that's kind of like when you go into ancient cultures, remember that. <laughs> Things were not yeah. easy. Yeah, so to us, this seems barbaric because we live in a much more tame, modernized Western society. But again, we have to put these things into their ancient Near Eastern context and judge it by those standards. Many local nations around this time also had severe penalties for crime. This was simply the standard. One nation held that the tongue, breast, hand, or ear should be cut off for certain crimes. Another held that criminal, the criminal would be dragged across a field by cattle. Egyptian punishments often involved cutting off the nose or ear. The Old Testament punishments were actually quite tame, especially when comparing the number of lashings one could get in Israel, which is a 40 max, to other nations like Egypt, which was a 100 minimum to a 200 max. 
Punishment for theft in the Old Testament never involved mutilation like other nearby nations. David mentioned the Hammurabi Code. Um, the Yeah, they were a lot more Pretty violent. brutal. The Hammurabi Code, uh, Egypt, a lot of the nearby nations had similar laws, but they were much harsher. And so, yes, the Old Testament sounds really harsh in terms of, like, the laws, like, kill someone if they do this yeah. sin. But, I mean, you can also say that about, like, some modern civilizations. Like, I mean, in Africa, they still do witch burnings. Yeah. In, like, the Middle East, they still cut people's arms off. They still behead them. We're not so far distance from being as terrible as they are we we have army we just have armies to bomb little kids this time instead of just killing them yeah, and i mean or to, th them. to think about it we were hanging people electrocuting them to death we got kids shooting in, them in the chest we got kids in cages cutting off their fucking heads not that long ago a yep. thousand years from now yep. we will be seen as the barbarians oh yeah and that's progress <clears throat> If we aren't able to look back and see the differences in the strides we've made as humankind, then there is no progress and it's a mute point. Yeah, and the big thing is a lot of people will get caught up on the the difference between a description and prescription. They'll assume that because it's in the Old Testament, therefore it is condoned. And this is one of those aspects of it's a description in some cases it's a description of the culture in other ways it's a prescription of what god commands if you commit said sin um so uh i forgot my train of thought um but regarding an eye for an eye it makes sense in the case of a life for a life but if you read the passages immediately following this command you read when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let this slave go because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of another slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. This is Exodus 21, uh, verses 26 and 27. This is a monetary command, not a literal one. The idea that the idea is for the punishment to fit the crime. Other nations seem to fit the eye-for-an-eye model more literally. For example, one nation held that if a construction worker accidentally killed a child through his work, then his own child would be killed in return. This was not permitted in Israel. Israel also makes the distinction between accidental killing and intentional killing and treated the punishment accordingly, whereas other nations saw no difference and opted for the literal eye for an eye. Yeah, and I mean, even that in itself is found today. Like in America, we have involuntary manslaughter, we have murder, we have capital murder. Yeah. And we, we have, have three degrees of murder, plus involuntary. And just manslaughter. And reckless homicide. So we still have differentiating factors in murder today where some countries oh he's dead it doesn't matter how he got dead you're going down yeah yeah and, and just just like in america if you're with somebody in a lot of places and they shoot someone and you don't immediately call the cops right then and there and go yada 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 yes i was in the car you're this, catching that. a murder case you're going to jail right along with him for murder whether or not so we're 
not super different in terms like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, and as you were saying, like that was culturally a step forward for the judicial system. Yeah, where yeah. if you look at places, I mean, beforehand, before all of that, it was pretty much just kill them. Yeah, where you look at like China or North <clears throat> Korea or names a couple other countries off top. I can't remember off the top of my head. But any small infraction death. Off to off to the gulag off to head. or dead. Yeah. Slavery or death. Yeah. And granted, sometimes America is not too different, but it's a little bit better. Yeah. Still fucked up. Though. Yeah, you can tell people that ask these questions are not um super well informed on some of the places that are still like this on this earth today. Yeah, or they're looking through a modern lens instead of getting the context and all that which we've said earlier. Yeah. Now, uh, the last thing I wanted to mention about this is God essentially choosing to smite people um, sets a precedent for the severity of sin. It shows that God is not joking around and that he takes sin very seriously. This also helps modern Christians, uh, well, Christians and modern people, have a greater appreciation for how far we've come. Gone are the days where we have to stone people for their crimes because that price was paid on the cross. Many modern secular people take it for granted that it is precisely because of the cultural moral improvements made by ancient Israel and Christians that we can even enjoy our peaceful way of life today. So the Old Testament laid the grounds for the work to be done, and we can be thankful that we are not in that time period anymore. Yeah, and also to state something you said earlier, just because it was said in the Bible does not mean... It's condoned. Exactly. So a lot of people will be like, oh, the, the Old Testament, uh, there's polygamy, so therefore polygamy is okay. No. No. If you actually read more, you'll see that every, everyone who was in a polygamous marriage ended up in a terrible situation. Yeah. I mean, that's or like... Or even a side hoe. Look at David. He he, he got a side hoe. That's like going, hey, shit went bad. Uh, a yeah. person in power molested somebody, and so that's okay. No, it's still not okay. Doesn't change the facts. Right. Right, right, right. Yep. Well, for the last one, a good old classic story, Abraham. Oh, yes. Absolute banger. Why would God command Abraham to kill his son? Is it murder wrong? And it's in the Ten Commandments. So how is that not a contradiction to the moral teachings God has provided? All right, so... There's uh, multiple directions to go with this. First of all, the binding of Isaac occurs in Genesis 22, while the Ten Commandments were given to Moses in Exodus 20. But that's neither here nor there. Um, Why is God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son? It's important to see the bigger picture here and get a better understanding of what exactly is going on. Throughout the Pentateuch, or Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, for those who didn't know that, uh, Moses' weak faith is contrasted with Abraham's strong faith, even though Moses was the one who was given the law. For example, in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to travel to the land which I will show you, where he will make his descendants, uh, make a name for his descendants. Could you imagine abandoning your home and just going to some unknown place because... God told you so? It seems kind of absurd. But Abraham did it because he had faith in God. 
prior to God's command in Genesis 22, we are told that this is a test. Now notice the way that God speaks to Abraham. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moira. He asks, he is gentle and asks nicely. This should be a second clue on top of the fact that the, the story actually tells us that this is a test. This should be a second clue to the reader that something is up. Scholars have also noted how the account uses some very similar linguistics to how God commanded Abraham to go to the land, which I will show you. So God is using similar language to remind Abraham of his promise of prosperity to him when he says this. Even though the action seems counterintuitive and not prosperous, prosperous at all, it is a test of faith after all. So speaking of acts of faith, Abraham had actually already sent out his other son off into the wilderness just before the events in chapter 22. He didn't know if he was going to see his other son ever again, and now God wants him to kill this one. This must have made no sense to Abraham, but he was faithful anyway. After Abraham passes the test, God tells Abraham that he will make his sons as many as the stars in the sky. Any Israelites hearing this story would have realized, quote, that his own race owed its existence to the mercy of God and its prosperity to the obedience of their ancestor, end quote. That's a quote from a scholar in that book. So it's a test. Um, he didn't actually want him to kill his son. He yeah. wanted to see if he was going to be faithful. If he was going to listen. Yeah. All right, he, because I mean, And Abraham knew that God, because God had already promised him prosperity and through his bloodline. So if he just goes and kills his son, that's not going to, you know, you can't have prosperity. So he knew something was up. Also, something else that we don't think about when it comes to the context of this is um, I forget the exact details of this, but I did hear basically that Moses was very, he was like in old age at this point. So his son, you know, we had this, this, this image of like, you know, Moses is like 30 and his son is like 10 or whatever. No, Moses is like in old age and his son is a grown ass man. Is a grown ass man. He could probably take Moses. Like, let's be real. So, we, that that kind of changes the way the we dynamic. view the image. Yeah, Moses it, would have to sneak up on him. It's not like it's not like Moses is you know young and spry. Red would come gutters. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Gotta put that one in. Yeah. So I mean, th that is one of the more difficult texts of the Old Testament, yeah. definitely. Um, but it's not it's not condoning it. And it's also another thing is God is saying, hey, look, I'm not like those other pagan nations that will have you sacrifice your children. I'll actually do something. Yeah, this but, this was to bring to the attention that God, uh, the God of Israel, is different. And plus you've shown unadulterated loyalty right and reverence and also yeah. it kind of makes sense if god really wanted him to sacrifice his 
So he could at least give him a good reason and stuff like, yeah, just go sacrifice him. Yeah. yeah just, and just plus, do it. the Bible in itself is full of trials and tribulations. The lead <laughs> protagonist, the devil, is the... Antagonist, you mean? Antagonist. The yeah. fallen angel of sorts of temptation. Mm-hmm. His whole stick is to tempt you and fuck you up. And it's been proven that first God watch his own son get sacrificed. So let's put that right there. If he kills his own son, got to take one for a team sometimes. But he didn't do that. That's the biggest caveat is he didn't have him kill his own son. He didn't let Job die throughout all his trials. Mm -hmm. And he sacrificed his son for the betterment of mankind. So it's the only time where where the sacrifice That's that's another thing is those, this is a parallel to Yeah. Jesus's actual sacrifice. Yeah. Mm. And the only Took time he went out my mouth. Yeah. He went through with the sacrifice was for the betterment of mankind in the Bible. Yeah. No just I, like sacrificing of sheep wasn't wasn't that done? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that wasn't seen as you know, a barbaric, it was the... Everybody did that. It was a way to cleanse. Even the yeah. pagan nations. Yeah. Um, we don't look at that any different, but that was Jesus' role, is the sheep that he was slaughtered. Yeah, and that's why we don't do sacrifices anymore. Yeah. He kind of put a hole into the sacrifice thing, so it's not able to really be brought up Yeah. again. So that's why it's really not in the New Testament, you know? Yeah. What were you going to say? Well, I, I was space. I was gonna say the same thing as you said, pretty much it. Oh, about mm. Jesus being like the yeah, the parallel in the New Testament to that. There's a lot of parallels. Except that in I actually of, went through. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I mean, I do understand, like, because as we've spoken about, most people, even a lot of Christians, don't understand the context behind that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you read it without context, it sounds like a mixture of lost cause fallacy. And a horror movie. Yeah, it's... That surprisingly doesn't end in another person death. We have to remember that this is a, a book written on the other side of the world thousands of years ago, and it is like entering a different culture when you're reading it. And That's then there's it. a lot of context that you're Fun missing as culture. well. culture, you're entering a whole different world yeah. than the one we are in now. Yeah. Nothing but empty lands and a few houses. I mean, the fact that the Bible has been translated in how many fucking languages? Almost should, all of them, I think. I don't really should know bring, exactly. And there's a lot of Bibles in dead languages. Yeah. For Because it has it's a whole different world. Mm-hmm. We don't communicate the same. We don't look at things we the same. We have cars in the internet. And so yeah. to look at anything in Old Testament outside of that context is not fair to it. Just like even the New Testament is yeah, is going to be foreign. Yeah, just like looking at any religious text outside of its context is extremely unfair to it. Yeah. Um, one last thing uh, about the uh, the Binding of Isaac story is that it, it, to some degree, you know, not not exactly. I I feel. Like, this story kind of resonates with me a little bit because I feel like 
there have been times that God has asked me to do things that seem very counterintuitive at times. So go speak with this person when I'm not a very extroverted person. Forgive this person when I feel like that person really hurt me. Apologize to this person when I feel like I wasn't the one in the wrong. I feel like God frequently asks me to do things that don't make sense to me, but work out for the greater good in the end. And that's kind of what's going on in the story. Lose something or someone and you learn a valuable lesson through that or through the chains of events. Just like he was willing to lose his son, who obviously he's a father. He's going to love that fucker. He was willing to go make that sacrifice. He also, like I, like I said, he just, he knew like it wasn't actually going to happen. He was like, I don't know what's going to go on, but he was willing to trust God because he was like either God, his, what was going through Abraham's mind was either God's going to stop me from this or he's going to raise him from the dead. Yeah. And it's always got to look at the bigger picture when you do or do anything or go through anything. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing you can take from that story is there's always a bigger picture. And it's the more trials and tribulations us. won't be that severe. They but might be. They, uh, they, sacrificing your child, as we spoke, it really doesn't happen. Might get <laughs> hungry. <laughs> but but like him moving to a whole new area. Yeah. Uh, that could be your big trial, trying to adjust there, be successful there. Watching someone you love die, that could be your trial. And you could learn way more than if they would stick around forever. You never know. You just got to take it in stride and try to get the bigger picture. Yeah. So those were, I think that's all we have for this episode. Uh, Those were some of the uh, bigger questions about the Old Testament. Um, Next episode, we've got uh, only two questions, but they're, they're very big controversial and we're going to go a little bit more in depth with responding to those because those are particularly culturally sensitive today um so yeah do we have anything else before we wrap this one up it's really it yeah it's been real it's been fun it's been real fun it's the official (laughs) outro of the podcast oh yeah see you guys next time yeah thanks for thanks for listening see you guys then